Less Doing, episode 103. Ari talks with Thomas Corley of Rich Habits. Welcome to the Less Doing podcast. Less Doing, more living, more living, more living, more living. Hi, I'm Ari Mizell, and this is the Art of Less Doing. I'm going to teach you how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life, including your health, in order to be more effective. I want you to stress less, free up as much time as possible, and do the things you want to do. Welcome back to the Less Doing Podcast. This is episode 103, where I'm interviewing Thomas Corley. And for this episode as well, I have a guest co-host, Nick Sonnenberg. So Nick, thank you for coming back. Thanks for having me, Ari. Absolutely. So uh, this episode of the Less Doing Podcast is sponsored by EverContact. Uh, now, we're going to have a link in the show notes that will give you 25% off EverContact. And basically, EverContact saves busy professionals hours every week by auto-enriching their address book. This powerful set-and-forget cloud service intelligently scans your incoming email and adds or updates contact details such as phone numbers, name, company, company role, address, social media handles, and more in your address book or CRM. And it's available for Gmail, Outlook, Salesforce, Chrome, and more. I've been using EverContact for a long time. I know that Nick has been using EverContact as well. It's a great service. And now if you use the link in the show notes, you'll get 25% off. So thank you for sponsoring. I love EverContact. Great customer service too. The guy really really helped me get it set up. um, And it's been a really awesome service. Interesting links of the week. So uh, the first one I want to talk about today, the first link is a really, really cool one. Uh, I think I might have shown you this video, Nick, the ambulance drone. Did I show that to you? No. Okay. So this is awesome. Uh, and it's it's on YouTube. It's called the ambulance drone. And it's a, I think it's a engineering student in Holland, maybe. But basically what this is, is a little, it's a drone. It's a helicopter drone that has a uh, an AED on it. And that is an automated electronic electronic uh, defibrillator. So basically, for people who, who aren't aware of this, CPR does not uh, restart a heart. It'll, it, you know, CPR saves, that's for tr- that's absolutely true, but basically you're doing CPR until somebody can get there with an AED so that they can actually help restart somebody's heart who's gone into cardiac arrest. So what this drone does is it can basically, they're gonna, the, the idea is to station it around a city and it can fly at you know 80 miles an hour, so it can pretty much get like anywhere within two minutes. And then it's got a a, a webcam on it, and it's got a speaker so that the the 911 operator can basically control it and talk to the person on site and talk them through putting the AD pads on the person and shocking them back to life, hopefully. So this is an incredible thing in terms of health response, and many 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 lives will be saved by this kind of thing. Wow, that's that's un- unbelievable. I, I, for me, that's really um, important. My dad had a heart attack when I was eight, um, so we were lucky that the fire department's close by to our house. But if, if you're not lucky and you have a fire department close by, um, you can really be in trouble. So that's that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. This is, I mean, it, it's the time. You know, the difference between life and death, honestly, can be a few minutes in this kind of situation. And if you can get there even a minute sooner, although this is going to get there five or six minutes sooner than on average. I mean, because even like in New York City, which is obviously a densely populated city, I think the average response time is something like 12 minutes. Like that's how long it takes, which is still usually if you really get on it, that's enough time to to save a life. But if this could get to someone, you know, within a minute of making the call, it's, it's really an amazing innovation. 
Um, so the uh, <laughs> I always like these kind of smart devices. There's something called the Made Oven, and this is a smart oven. So it's an oven that knows what to cook and how to cook it. And it's a, it's a, it's a Kickstarter campaign, which is I feel like this is kind of an unusual thing to see on Kickstarter. But basically, uh, it's got a cloud-based system that can give you recipes. It has intelligent personalization, so it kind of learns like how you like your steak and how you like things cooked. You can control it remotely, uh, and it will it it works with the recipes to know what to cook and how long to cook it. Basically, so the smart oven on Kickstarter. It's really the interesting thing with this kind of stuff for me is that yes, it's very cool, but I feel like for appliances and for, for certain other things, but for appliances particularly, it's almost like a gamble going with a small no-name company. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, it sounds cool, but um, I'm sure my girlfriend, uh, Francesca, would not want me putting, putting another device into the kitchen right now. Right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And then it's also, it's like, you know, not that Whirlpool necessarily makes the most amazing appliances or something, but with, with certain things that kind of brand name recognition, I think has helped. Of course, if they create this technology and then they get bought by one of those companies, that'd be great. But I agree. It's, it's kind of a weird thing, I feel like, to have on Kickstarter to have a, an oven. <laughs> yeah. Cool, nonetheless. Yeah, cool. Another Kickstarter campaign, though, that I think is awesome is called Fugu Luggage. Uh, and Fugu, like a blowfish, basically. That's the Japanese word for blowfish and this luggage is basically supposed to be like the storage of checked luggage in the form factor of carry-on luggage and i've seen things like this before but this one is really really cool so basically it pops up it's got these like inflated sides or something when it's folded down it looks like a like just like a little carry-on it's got really interesting wheels on it that can go in any different direction. And when you pop it up, it actually has shelves inside. So you can pack in a whole bunch of stuff and then it compresses back down. And you essentially can take a really a whole lot of luggage with you in carry on. And it has some other benefits such as like it has a pull out laptop sleeve when it is uh, uh, extended, it actually is the right height to be like a laptop desk if you're sitting in an airport and you need something to put your laptop on. Cool. Yeah, yeah, this thing is this thing is super cool. Uh, and if you're traveling with family, where you're obviously taking lots and lots of stuff, which I can attest to from traveling with my kids, then the more stuff that you can have on you in a form factor that actually makes sense, then you're, you're that far ahead. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, so this is another one that's sort of, this is like a niche thing, but I really like this. It's called Instagrade. It's an app where you basically can create quizzes on your computer and then you can grade them with your iPhone. So what you're doing is you're creating quizzes where people, you know, it's like multiple choice, just like uh, when you took the SATs, you know, they, they usually are not usually, they didn't do that by hand. They ran those through a computer and yep. this does that. So you can create a, a, a quiz and then you just show, basically put the image of the iPhone or you hold the iPhone over it and it grades it instantly. Wait, you hold the iPhone over it, you take a picture and then it, it uh, converts it. Yeah, so it scans the answers basically instantly with the iPhone. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so and it's saying uh, you get graded quizzes in your inbox. So you can see which questions your students are having trouble on or export the results to Excel and do even more. You can send the results directly to students' emails or their parents. Now, I'm not thinking of this actually as a teacher. I was thinking of this more for like corporate training and for uh, retreats even where 
you want to just make this really easy and, and not necessarily like, you know, oh, you have to do your homework, but it's, it'd be really cool. I feel like if you did this in a room of 200 people and then while you're talking, an assistant could just scan them really quick and you get the aggregated answers. It's pretty neat. It's, it's cool. But, um, so the benefit of this is you start with a paper quiz and then a, you can take a picture and instantly get the results because it converts it to some digital based solution. Right. Right. So I, yeah, I mean, that's cool, but I, I guess, in the near future, there probably will be no more paper quizzes anyways. Everything will probably be uh, online to, to start. Yeah, but, but then, of course, there's the cheating aspect, I guess, that they have to worry about with that. So not, yeah. not that people can't cheat with, with uh, paper, but <laughs> did you ever cheat on a test, Nick? Never. But Never? Uh, I, do, I do know a few people that have. Okay, well... Oh. Uh, no, I'm just joking. I've, I guess you could say I've collaborated on tests before. Yeah, it was it was collaboration. Well, so funny story. When I, I got my uh, scuba diving certification, I did it out down in the Caribbean, and it was it was a uh, it wasn't a very stringent situation. Let's just say that. So uh, I, I was with two friends. We did the whole the, the we we did the practical set, and then we the this instructor literally took us to a bar next door and put us at a table and said, you know, I'll be back in a half an hour. Do do your test. So you know, we're we both like all three of us are like starting to do the test, and then we were going and going and going, and then we start like asking each other questions. And so when we took the test to be graded, he grades the first one. He grades the second one, and he's like, "I guess I don't have to grade the third one, huh?" <laughs> so, uh, yes. Yeah. But in but in all fairness, he was like, "Hey, it's it's your life, you know, it's scuba diving." So, yeah. But I, I felt it was okay. I've never had an accident. So, in college, I studied math, and um, it wasn't cheating. I was playing by the rules. But they, in most math classes, they allow you one one sheet to bring in for a formula sheet. Yeah. So, so I mean. It was their rule, but I would go to Kinko's, you know, the night before, and I would shrink down to like a size two font, um, almost every important part of every section of the book. Um, so when I went in, I basically had the whole book down to one page, and I just bring a magnifying glass. <laughs> you were like sitting there with like a monocle. Yeah, but it worked. That's awesome. Um, that's that's pretty slick. Uh, this, this, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, so then I, I think that that actually leads into the next link pretty well, uh, which is there is an article on make use of, which is a, a website that I like, and it's about, it's about the, uh, the truth about, I'm sorry, the journey into the deep web. So have you, have you read about this at all? Like the dark web, the deep web, the hidden web, you know about that at all? Like Tor? No. Okay. So Tor, which stands for the onion router is this uh, protocol, it's a client, uh, you know, a web client or desktop client where you can access the parts of the internet that basically don't have web addresses. So there's something like all the websites that you can go to, you know, google.com, lessdoing.com, calvinapp.com, all those things, that's like 5% of what's actually out there on the internet. Yeah. And there's some very dark stuff that happens on the dark web, such as you can, like there's the Silk Road, which has been in the news a lot about uh, you know, you can, you can buy drugs and weapons and all that stuff and um, some very, very illegal activity. And what Tor does is it makes it so that you can't uh, track it. It basically makes it so you can access the stuff by bouncing your traffic around the world. Now, 
that it, it, there's a lot of obviously devious ways to use that. But on the other side of it, you apparently can do some very detailed research in the deep web that you can't do otherwise. Um, so like for like lost relatives or adoption research or uh, veteran research, there's all sorts of like hacked databases that have been made available in the deep web that you can't normally access. So, uh, you know, information is one of the most powerful commodities, I guess, right? And the, one of the probably most expensive ones if you get the right kind of information. So, uh, so who's blocking you from accessing this stuff? Is it the government that blocks you from getting into the deep web or? Well, no, it's not. It's well, yes and no. It's not that they're blocking you. It's that there's no real way to access it other than to know, like you can't Google this stuff. You can't search for it. Obviously you have to know what you're looking for. Um, and they can't track it because they're using these onion router things. You, they really, it, there's no way to know where it is or where it's being stored, you know, because your traffic will get bounced through like Sierra Leone to Russia to Paris and then back to wherever it is. So it, you can't really track it. Yeah. Um, so a lot of these people are just, are making like information available. You know, people, people buy research papers. They, they all sorts of, I mean, pretty amazing. I haven't gotten really into it, but it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. There's obviously a lot of illegal websites and content, and that's not something that I'd recommend, but if you're doing it for research, you can access government databases, like all sorts of stuff that you just couldn't access otherwise. And, and some of this is probably things that there should be some sort of freedom of information around. But if you want to do it without being tracked or, or figuring out, you know, you don't want to be associated with this kind of stuff, then this is an, an option. So the hidden web, the dark web, check out Tor if you want to try it out. Like modern day black market. That's what it is. I mean, it really is. So, yeah. Uh, okay, so there is a uh, there's another one an infographic that I found called the truth about superfoods. Now, some of this stuff is is hyped up the wrong way, and you know it's because it's sponsored by a company that makes some other superfood. But there is some real valid stuff to it. So first of all, when a lot of people hear about superfoods, they're thinking about things like goji berries and uh, acai and and wheatgrass, for instance. So like for instance, what this is saying is for wheatgrass. The, the reality is it doesn't even contain enough nutrients to count towards your five a day in terms of, you know, greens and vegetables or the acai berry, which I know that you're a fan of the, the, uh, what's it, juice generation, the acai ball. I cut down on it after you told me uh, how much sugar it was in it. Yeah. So acai has, is the, oh, the acai bowls have a lot of sugar, but basically it, acai berry is supposed to help with, 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 uh, weight loss and it's, it's totally unproven, which is, which is true. I know about that. But what they do show is what the real superfoods are. And I'll just tell you a few of the top ones. Watercress, oddly enough, is the number one. It's like a hundred score on terms of how much vitamins and, and mineral it, uh, rich it is. So it's not surprising a lot of the superfoods that they actually say are real superfoods are green. So you got watercress, chard, Chinese cabbage, uh, spinach, parsley, romaine, uh, and, and believe it or not, kale is like the 15th one. So watercress is like your number one superfood. Then it goes down to like red pepper, pumpkin. Uh, what's that? Oh, I said that's an, an interesting. We uh, Francesca and I take royal jelly in the morning. Is that a superfood? So bee pollen, it lists here as one of the ones that really is a, a superfood. And, and yeah, royal jelly is, 
I don't know how to describe. Do you know how to describe it properly? Like it's it's what part of the honey making process is it or the bee? Like I think it's the queen. It's the it's the it's the honey that comes from the queen bee. I think. Yeah, that or the oh no no no. I think it's I think huh? it's what feed, it comes from the queen bee, but I think it's what feeds the workers bees or something. Yeah, something. It's like a really concentrated uh, type of honey. Yeah. So with that, you're getting like you're you're getting energy boost. It's supposed to be really good anti antimicrobial. Uh, really good for your immune system, and that that is that's true. That's legit. So that's cool that you take that. Um, and then the uh, the last one I want to talk about before we sign off here is there is a video on YouTube called "Law Student Schools Police Officer on His Gun Rights." Now I, I'm not an advocate necessarily of like the right to bear arms, but I am very uh, emphatic about people sort of knowing their rights, and I think that a lot of and I, I've only had two weird experiences with police officers. I've never been arrested, but I, I've had two situations where I thought I was going to be arrested, actually, for just being a kid, basically. But what happens in this video is that the guy has crossed the street in, like, I think it's in Boston, and he has a gun, and it's it's a legal gun. He has a legal pistol, and the guy is a law student. And basically, the cop is asking him for his ID, and he says, no, I'm not going to give you my ID, and I don't have to because, you know. And he starts citing all these different legal cases, and you can't arrest me. You can't even stop me. Uh, and like he gets to this point where he says, you know, is the only reason you stopped me because I had a gun? And the, the officer said, yes. He says, well, according to this case, that cannot be the only reason that you stopped me unless you suspect me of a crime. So he, the cop has to give his gun back and let the guy go. He doesn't even get his first name. <laughs> so I just think it's interesting. It's an interesting illustration of sort of just knowing your rights. And, and you know, if you're doing something legally, then that's great. And you should you should be aware of that. So a uh, really cool video. That, that reminds me, I'm, I'm just going to Google it. There's um, a magician that uh, was trying to sell a cop a bag of, of weed. And when the, when the cop went to grab it, it disappeared. Have you seen that video? No. I'll, uh, I'll send it to you. You can put it in the show notes. It, it's, it's hilarious. And then the cop is freaking out and then just tells him to go away because he searches him and, the, and it's nowhere on his body. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to share that with me so I can put it in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, well, great. So we're going to get to the interview with uh, Thomas Corley. Nick, thank you so much for being my, uh, my guest co-host for the day. And um, signing off from Let's Do It. And now for Feature Interview. Now I'm speaking with Thomas Corley, who is the author of Rich Habits, and also rich kids. So, Tom, thank you, first of all, for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, my pleasure, Ari. Thanks for having me on your podcast. So how did this, how did this whole study come about? Like, what, what, what got you to write the book, The Rich Habits, first of all? Yeah, well, I, back in 2004, I had just taken over the reins of uh, my uh, CPA firm. And uh, a small business client urgently needed to meet with me. So we met uh, late that night, and uh, he had he had a, a small business that was uh, uh, in the family, and he had been passed on to him. And I guess he was just uh, running it into the ground, he, you know. And he was tapping his line of credit, and he cap he maxed out on his line of credit, and tried to get him it extended. And finally, the bank just sh shut him down on the line of credit, and. Um, he wanted to meet with me because he was hoping <clears throat> that the uh, the new guy in charge of the firm could somehow magically find him a, another bank who could get him a line of credit. And I, <clears throat> I told him I, I just couldn't do it on such short notice. 
I told them that those banking relationships take take years to develop, uh, and um, so he just uh, he just broke down. Ari started started sobbing. He was crying in front of me uh, because he wasn't going to be able to make payroll that Friday, and he had something like fifteen people depending on him. Uh, so. Um, you know, in between the sobs, he said, you know, what am I doing wrong? Uh, what, what am I doing wrong? And, and what are the successful people, clients that you have? What do they do that I'm not doing? And um, it just kind of hit an emotional nerve with me. And I started doing research. And the, the only thing I could find that had any relevance was uh, Dr. Thomas Stanley's research that he had done on The Millionaire Next Door. But that was really for, you know, high-income individuals, affluent people. Uh, it, it didn't really address what you're doing wrong or, or what kind of daily habits and activities and behaviors that wealthy people have that were responsible for their success. So I started doing research. It, it, it started out slow, and then it, you know, it, it ended up uh, building up steam. And I, after four and a half years... Um, I, I finished my research. And I looked at uh, over 200 wealthy people. I interviewed over 200 wealthy people and over 100 uh, poor people just to try and find out what, what they did every day. Uh, I wasn't necessarily asking them, hey, why are you successful? I was trying to find out what you did uh, you know, in the morning, what you did in the afternoon, what you did at night, uh, you know, how do you manage your day? And there was over 66 questions that I asked and I accumulated 288 uh, categories of responses or responses that I broke out into 288 categories. And then I, I summarized them into 10 keystone habits that I call the rich habits. Uh, and, um, and these habits are really, uh, the, the daily habits be, are so different between the wealthy and the poor. It's like, um, you know, if you think about the Grand Canyon, on one side of the Grand Canyon are the rich and on the other side of the poor in terms of their daily habits. For, for example, one of the questions I asked was, what do you do at the end of your workday? What do you do with your time? And when I asked wealthy people that question, uh, their response was, well, you know, I'm on the board of director of this company. I run this nonprofit. I, I'm on this committee and I'm on that committee for a business organization. Um, I'm going to school at night. I, you know, I, I do speaking engagements, I teach, all sorts of things. There, there were dozens of activities that the wealthy had. When I asked the same question to the, the people in the poor group, their response was almost unanimously, well, you know, I'm, I'm so, I work so hard and I'm under so much stress at work that when I come home, uh, I just want to relax. So I eat dinner, watch TV. Um, I might read something for recreational purposes just to relax my mind. And then I go to bed and I do the same thing all over again. So uh, it was just a world of difference between the two groups. And, uh, and I decided uh, it was so profound that I, you know, I needed to write a book about it, even though I had never written a book before. Well, so first, well, okay, so that's, that's, <clears throat> I'm glad that you kind of ended on that because how did you think of what habits to even look at? Or was it really just like, what do you do in your day? Or, I mean, were you, what made you, you know, what were the threads that you were pulling on? Well, ironically, I wasn't looking for habits. Right. I mean, that, it wasn't until after I gathered all of the, the data, which was took about four and a half years, as I said, 
I spent another 16 months analyzing the data. And then I started to see these common threads in the categories. And uh, I realized it dawned on me like, like an epiphany. I said, my God, these are daily habits. These are things that you process into your day uh, or don't process into your day. And so uh, I, I did my best to try and summarize them into 10 core keystone habits. They're, keystone habits are unique habits. They're, they're powerful habits. They're the things that can offset and influence other behavior in your day. So, um, you know, when I, when I got it down to these 10 keystone habits, that's when it, it was probably months later when I decided I've got to write a book about this. And, um, and then, the, you know, the book was, was born one night. I was in, in the middle of sleep. And I, it was really an interesting night because I got woken up about six or seven times in the middle of the night with, uh, I don't know, the whole book almost was downloaded into my head, the, at least the outline of the book, including the title. Uh, I hadn't even called these rich habits. I didn't know what the hell to call them, you know? So uh, that night, though, I, it kind of all came together in my subconscious, I guess. And uh, I started writing rich habits that, that, that next day. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> when, how much of this do you think, and before we get into some of those habits, how much do you think of this as cause and, uh, you know, causal relationship, basically? Like, obviously, it's not as easy as like, oh, I'm going to wake up, you know, at the end of the day, I'm going to start going to be on the board of a charity. I'm going to suddenly enroll in school and now I'm going to be successful or I'm going to be rich. There, right. there has to be, you know, things along the way. So how much of that is you're trying to emulate the things that will put you in a position to be more successful versus uh, actually making that change happen? Yeah, they're really little incremental. These habits are really little incremental things that you do every day that build success. And there is a cause and effect, but it's not its not a cause and effect where, okay, I'm going to add the rich habit of reading 30 minutes every day for self-education and then voila, in a year I'm successful. It's a compound effect, as Darren Hardy like, likes to call it, uh, where you, um, you, you just do certain right things every day and they build up and they build up. And, and what happens is, is because you're doing these things, <clears throat> uh, you start to see certain opportunities because, you know, for example, when you're educating yourself to such self-education, you start to see opportunities you didn't see before because you have more knowledge when you're on these uh, boards or nonprofits or in these network groups, you start to meet people who open up doors for you. And so it doesn't happen overnight, but it, it's a building process. It's a compounding process. It's an incremental process. And it does take time. But, you know, I've been, I'll tell you the one rich habit that I followed before I even wrote the book, I, before I even finished my research really was uh, the, the tracking schedule that I uncovered in, in my research for um, tracking your calories every day. And um, I was at, at the time, I think it was July of 07, I was probably about 212 pounds. And um, I wanted to get my weight down, even though I'm 6'3", it's hard to notice, but I knew it. So I started <laughs> um, following that rich habit, which was the tracking schedule. And I, uh, it only, that was July of 07. By February of 08, I was down to 174 pounds. Uh, and so, so, so you're, you're saying rich people track 
the food that they eat. Yeah, 57% of uh, the wealthy in my study actually were watching what they ate. They, and many of them were counting calories. That's where I, that's how I found the tracking schedule through uh, about three or four of the individuals had a tracking schedule that they shared with me that they used, that they created uh, on their own. So um, I started, uh, you know, just duplicating it. And I lost a lot of weight. And um, and then, you know, I've kept it off. I'm probably around, I fluctuate between 180 and 190 now. Uh, but the, the great thing is, I feel like I have total control over my weight. Because if I, if, like right now, I'm at the high end, at 189. So I've decided I'm going to lose four or five pounds this month. So I'm, I'm back on the tracking schedule. And um, so it's, it's just doing these things that wealthy people do that, that they do because they've had success with it. Uh, so it's really just walking in the footsteps of the wealthy, as I like to say. Uh, I like that. Um, so let's talk about exercise for a second. So I'm assuming that that had to come up. Yeah, that was, um, you know, that when I asked, you know, the question about their activities, what they do in the morning and at night, uh, exercise kept popping up and, and specifically aerobic exercise. And I said, boy, isn't that interesting? You know, the wealthy seem to have a predilection for uh, wealthy for aerobic exercise. Uh, 76% of them. I found in my research exercise 30 minutes or more a day, four days a week aerobically. And, and what's interesting with that, Ari, is because <clears throat> I'm doing research right now on, my, on a book I'm working on called Rich Thinking. And it's, there's a lot in the book, there's a, a lot of research uh, on uh, neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, cognitive ability, and, and the brain. And what I'm finding in my research, which is amazing, is that um, the research, all, all the research says the same thing about aerobic activity, that it, it's uh, a major factor in neurogenesis, which is the creation of neurons. Uh, and it creates uh, something called a, 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 a growth factor yeah. that is like miracle growth for the, the brain. And uh, it stimulates the growth of, of new neurons in the hippocampus. You're talking about BDNF, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, brain-derived yeah. neurotrophic factor. Yeah. That's right. Thank you. I couldn't remember the name. No. And, uh, and so, um, and so I said, "Wow, you know, this is amazing." So the wealthy people are—they don't know that they're they're growing their brains. Uh, so, so this this BDNF is is actually increasing brain mass when you exercise aerobically. And, uh, and so uh, it, and what I'm finding out is a lot of this aerobic activity that the wealthy do, that they stumble into growing their brains, whether they know it or not. Uh, so it's, it's um, an inter that was very interesting research uh, that I found. And, and then wh what about like morning rituals? Were there things that you found particularly uh, common there? Yeah, almost, almost uh, all of them. They, re they read uh, 30 minutes or more every morning. 88% uh, of the wealthy read 30 minutes each day for self-education, self-improvement. Uh, they were trying to learn. And for the most part, it was career-related, something related to their job. The nonfiction. Nonfiction, yeah. Right. They're, they're not reading fiction. They're, 
they're, they're, if they're reading at all, because a lot of successful people don't have a lot of time. So if they're reading at all, they're reading for a purpose. Uh, and so they're, they're trying to gain information, grow their knowledge base. And, um, and, and, you know, only 2% of the poor did that. Um, and they, you know, reading seems to be one of the primary things in the morning, along with the exercise. Uh, and then some of them were also, uh, who were teaching as at college at night or at grad school, they, they were preparing lessons. They were, you know, working professors, I guess they call them adjunct professors. Others uh, were doing speaking engagements. So they were preparing for different speaking engagements that they, they did uh, on a regular basis. Uh, and others were going to school at night. Uh, some were preparing their day, doing, you know, preparing their to-do list, mapping out their day. Uh, they were doing certain things that were instrumental in helping them improve themselves and what they do uh, related to their job. Uh, and that was, you know, and sometimes it was at night too. You know, the morning stuff was 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 one thing, but a, a lot of it also they did at night. And it's mostly at night it was the going to school, speaking engagements, networking. Uh, some of them were, you know, coaching teams that the kids were on. They were, and th that's important. You might think, well, okay, so what? But they're meeting a lot of parents and a lot of other people and it, it expands their network and their, their relationships grow. So it seems like the wealthy were really focused on building valuable relationships. In fact, I, I like to say that the relationships are the currency of the wealthy. They are the, uh, those relationships help open doors for, for example, one of the individuals in my study was, um, he ran a commodity desk for a big financial organization in New York city. And, um, he got fired at the end of 2008, along with a lot of other people. And, uh, he called me up to tell me, Hey, you know, I, you know, I just got fired. And he was laughing about it. And I said, well, well, it doesn't sound like you should be laughing. He goes, Oh no, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off and then I'll get a job. And I said, how, do, how can you be so confident? And he said, well, there's so many people that I mentored in this industry. He said, I just have to make a few phone calls and you know, somebody will hire me. And he, he called me back a few weeks later, said um, he got a job, better pay, working for someone, someone who worked for him. And uh, that, that's when I realized, and, and my, my second book, my follow-up book to Rich Habits is Rich Kids. It's really a mentoring book. It's about how to mentor uh, others and particularly kids, parents, grandparents, teachers, and, and anybody else who wants to mentor anyone. So uh, what he did was he was a mentor for, like he said, uh, for a lot of people, and they were more than happy to help him find a job because they, uh, they one, of the, one of the items in my research was 93% um, of the wealthy who had mentors said that those mentors were, were the reason why they had wealth. If it wasn't for the mentor, they wouldn't have had the wealth that they had. So uh, these, this mentor, and I, and I remember sharing this with my son when I, when I, when I stumbled onto this, that statistic. He was, uh, I think he was a junior in college at the time. And um, I told him, you know, you got you to gotta mentor uh, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, young kids that come in. 
uh, make sure you do that because you you know you never know. Uh, I just found this in my research, and so do it. So he started doing that. He was a member of um, an organization called the Board of Programs at Providence College, and um, and he was one of the leaders. So he he actively started mentoring the younger kids. And, and the interesting thing, Ari, was when he graduated. Uh, it, the, the in 2011, the market was horrible in, in the finance industry. They were firing people. They weren't hiring people. But he found a job. He found a job uh, through one of the, the uh, individuals he mentored whose father was uh, a, a top guy at a, at a big Wall Street company, Wall Street financial firm. Uh, and he got he got an interview because of of his relationship with the, the individual he was mentoring. So, I, you know, this stuff is is ironclad as far as I'm concerned. There's no question about it. It's just it's it's not an overnight thing, you know. Well, and that's actually why I want to talk to you also about the, the rich kids, of course, because it's one thing to list all these habits, which is really informative. And obviously there's things that people can change very easily or more easily than others, and some that they can't as, as you know, a, a full-grown adult with sort of a, a life in place. But there is obviously a lot of things that we can do for our children. I'm a father of three, and it's something that's always on my mind about, you know, what is the right kind of example or information to provide. So uh, before I actually get to that, though, one of the questions I had, and it, you can just give me sort of a quick answer on that is if you have the information, but when people had those mentors, do you remember or did you find out the sort of breakdown of whether those mentors were family versus not, you know, like a father figure or somebody else? Yeah, pre predominantly they were individuals that they stumbled into yeah. at work. Um, yeah. But there's really, you know, five, I think there's five places that I uncovered in my research where, where you find mentors. The, the first is parents. Parents are often the only shot any of us have at having a mentor. Most of us, you know, parents are it. Uh, and then if you can't find, if parents aren't good mentors, and most of them aren't, not, not because they, you know, it's, it's just that they, did, they learn from their parents and they're passing it along to their kids what they learn. Uh, so the second place you would go to is, is really teachers. Teachers can be important success mentors to kids. And then career mentors, someone you find at work uh, can help mentor you and, and teach you what to do and what not to do. And then there's books. Uh, there's, you know, any book you read on self-improvement or successful people they, that can be a mentor to you. That's how I found my mentors through books. Uh, and then the last place is the school of hard knocks when you, you start a small business and you just screw up and you learn from your mistakes. They're like railroad tracks on the brain. Every time you make a mistake, it costs you time and money. So you remember it. Uh, but that's the hard way. The, the best way is to find a, a mentor through your parents or through your career. Okay. So, and that's, that's not unsurprising to me. So, um, all right. So let's talk about kids for a minute. So what are some of the ways, the best ways other than, you know, mentorship is, is an, an excellent one, I think. And, and, and I also, I believe in that idea, you know, that mastery comes through teaching. So that, that really fits very well, but what are some of the other habits that are, are good to instill on children? Maybe what are some of the bad habits that you don't want to instill? Well, right now we're going through uh, a technological change and and you know with these cell phones what what i'm um i'm hearing for you know I, I, what really wasn't profound in my research but su subsequent to my research what a lot of the individuals who were uh leaders and most of the individuals in my study were in some way shape or form leaders in their organization 
um, they, they complained to me about how the kids seem to have this nasty habit, the kids that they interview, of looking down. And I said, well, what, what do you mean looking down? He said, well, their heads are bent and lo they're looking down when we're interviewing them. And and <clears throat> and I said, well, that, I never heard of that before. And he said, yeah, it's it's um, it's the cell phones. And uh, he said they're creating this nasty habit where kids are no longer looking you in the eye. They're, they seem distracted when you're interviewing them. And so that's a, that's a you know in my book Rich Kids I talk about um, communication etiquette that you the things that you got to teach your kids and, w and one of the things is you you've got to teach your kids to look people in the eye at you know five seconds at a clip and then you know you divert your glance and then look again so you know and and then to also learn how to um, listen there's a five one rule I talk about that for every minute that you talk. Listen for five minutes, and uh, and and then believe it or not, kids, th this generation of kids, they don't have really good eating etiquette, um, and that's because a lot of them um, learned how to eat uh, at fast food restaurants, uh, you know, and so there's you know there's no sitting down and there's no tableware, and so they when you when they go out and and in the real world and they go to a function, a business function, they don't know how to eat. They don't. They don't have any eating etiquette. So, these are some of the things that I uncovered that are uh, that I'm trying to educate the parents, teachers, and grandparents in, in the Rich Kids book. Yeah, I, that's the, so. I mean, it sounds like a sort of basic, sort of standard etiquette is is a, is a good part of it. Yeah, and it's missing. So uh, you know, it's it's just the way that that our culture is is evolving. Yeah. And pa parents have to, um, you know, understand that they're not there just to raise their kids to be adults. They're there to mentor their kids. And if they don't get these rich habits or these rich kids strategies at home, then the kids are, are going to have a learning curve when they get to, to work. And uh, the, the ones that are going to be ahead of the, the curve are the ones that had the parents that taught them these things. And, and interestingly, the the individuals in my study, their, their parents didn't necessarily come from, they, they weren't raised in wealthy backgrounds necessarily, but their parents made an effort to teach them some of these rich habits. And as a byproduct of that, they, they grew up doing certain things that, that other kids weren't doing. And they, they were able to separate themselves from the pack. They got ahead of the curve right out of the gate. And, um, you know, they, they end up rising up the ladder and become becoming leaders. And that's what wealth, the wealthy people in my organization and my research, I mean, they rose up in their organization uh, because of these habits. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, it, it sounds simple in a way, but I, I think that's really profound because you do have to, it's something that you do have to make that effort. I mean, even my wife and I are, are real stickers about this, but we have uh, twin 18 month olds and uh, another son who's almost three years old. And we always sit at the table together to eat and we make them to the table. And if they're done eating, or if they're, if they're going to get off the table then or away from the table, then they're done eating, you know, and it's something it's hard at that age, but it's something we've really been uh, adamant about. And it's kind of amazing to see our nearly three-year-old now where if you hand him a plate in the kitchen, he will walk over to the table and put it down and sit there. And I, I you know, it, it's, again, it's, 
on the one hand, you can look at that and be like, oh, well, that's, it's great. It's kind of superficial, though, because it's just they consider the table wonderful. But you're right. It really does instill some sort of structure, I think. You know, and, yeah. and it's not just whatever you want, wherever you want it. Yeah, you got, I mean, it's those little family get-togethers at dinner are instructional because they, they're every night you're repeating a behavior or teaching your kids a repeated behavior. And that is to sit down, you know, get your elbows off the table, uh, engage in conversation during dinner, all the things that when you get out into the real world and you're find yourself in a social setting, business setting, um, that you'll feel comfortable in that, in that setting, if if you have uh, parents instilled these things in you, it'll be rote. It'll be habitual. It won't even you won't even have to think about it. Uh, and I think that's where the the struggle we're having, you know, today with the culture is these kids are struggling with this stuff. So, uh, and, and then it, it does affect them on the job. You know, it, I remember one incident um, where when I was starting out, uh, I had. I was being recruited by a big accounting firm and I didn't get any of these rich habits at, in my house. Not, not a lot of them anyway. And I guess one of the, the poverty habits I had was my eating skills weren't that great. And uh, I ordered a, a steak. A lot of people ordered steaks around the table. I ordered a steak. And I, as soon as the steak arrived, I started putting salt on it. And it was probably a couple of days later that one of the uh, individuals who was interviewing me said, you know, one of the partners, you know, noticed that you put salt on your steak before you tasted it. And I said, so, <laughs> you know, so what? I mean, who cares? And he said, well, that well, he thought that was very strange. And uh, and I said, well, you know, I, that's what I, you know, what I I did at home. And I, yeah, I didn't see it as a poverty habit, but I'm not even sure it still is. But my point is that you do certain things without thinking, right? And people notice. Yeah. That's no, that's a that's a really funny one actually, and I, I think you know there's I can't remember what TV show it was, but there was some chef. It was a show about a chef, and uh, that was like his pet peeve when people would ask for mustard, ketchup, or salt before they had tasted the meal, and he'd like throw people out of his restaurant. So that's funny that that's the one you bring up. Um, all right, so we're just about out of time here, and I want to be respectful of your time, and and this is really informative. Uh, the last question that I always ask people on these interviews is, what are and, and you've given a lot already actually, but what are your top three personal tips? for people to be more effective? Well, definitely the reading 30 minutes a day for self-education. Yeah. Uh, you want to do that. And, you know, the rich in my study, they 51% uh, read history, 55% self-help, 58% biographies of successful people, and 79% read ed educational materials. So you want to kind of be in that sweet spot reading those kinds of things. You definitely want to grow your brain. So aerobic activity every day or, or at least uh, four days a week, that's that's important. And you've um, you've got to do certain things to build your relationships. Hello calls, happy birthday calls, life event calls, phone calls, not email, not Twitter, not Facebook. You get on the phone and you actually build a relationship with someone on the phone. You wish them a happy birthday uh, and uh, that grows the relationship tree. Uh, so you you want to build strong, valuable relationships with people, and and the happy birthday calls, at the very least, they keep your relationships on life support. Uh, so so you you know you but you're making the hello calls and life event calls, which are when something happens in their lives, you acknowledge it. Uh, that that actually grows the relationships much deeper. It's like uh, putting your relationships on steroids, I like to say. 
So I would say those three things. Those are great. Well, Tom, thank you so much. We'll have links in the show notes to all the books and everything, but what's the best place for people to find out more about you? Yeah, they could go to richhabits.net. Uh, I've got not only the, can they buy the books there, you can buy them anywhere where books are sold, but uh, there's also free eBooks, free reports that they can download. I have uh, a tip of the morning too. You can sign up uh, to receive that every day uh, or just go onto the website and read it. But uh, there's a whole bunch of information on there. I have all my interviews. Well, not all of them, but a lot of the media interviews, the TV interviews, the radio interviews, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, Kiplinger's MSN money magazine, they're all on there. So you can read um, and get more information from those interviews. Great. Well, Tom, thank you so much. And uh, really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me on, Ari. I appreciate it too. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Less Doing podcast. If you want to find out more information of the show, we would love to hear from you. You can go to lessdoing.com where you can look at Ari's blog, see the show notes for this episode, and also look at all the other episodes before this. If you want to send us a voicemail, we would love to hear from you and we'll play it on the show. You go to lessdoing.com, click on contact, and look on the right side of the page where you'll see a, a send voicemail button. Click on that and go ahead and record an audio message for us. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter. Ari's Twitter handle is at Ari Mizell, and mine is at Felix Bird. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. See you next time.